passage this morning is from Genesis 3, and I'm sorry it's just me today. We don't, not much variety, but I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving um, and get to enjoy the food. I, I had a great one. Um, I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm certainly thankful to see uh, so many wonderful faces, and uh, this is a great joy. So, our sermon this morning, let us focus. This is Genesis 3. This is a bit of a heavy passage this morning. Um, So my sermon's going to be a little bit lighter on the jokes than it normally is. Um, That is to say, they're not devoid of jokes, but I am who I am. And now I'm rambling, so let us get into Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the On your belly you shall go, and on dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as I preach this morning, I ask that the Spirit may fill us, and guide us, and give us wisdom. Lord, if I preach anything false or untrue, I do pray that they fall upon deaf ears, for it is your word that needs to be heard, and it is your word that changes hearts. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So when I was younger, in third grade, everybody had to take South Carolina state history. And because of that, I remember lots of things about South Carolina. Not helpful facts, but fun facts nonetheless. Uh, and I think my favorite is our state motto, Dum Spiro Spero. Uh, I actually had somebody who took Latin help me with a pronunciation. Pronunciation didn't help, help with that one. Um, but it means, while I breathe, I hope. And I think that's a very inspiring state motto, and sometimes I like to look up the other state mottos, and some of them are very inspiring. New Hampshire is probably the most famous. It is live free or die. Paul's in the back with both fists raised. He's excited about that. It's pretty great. Some of them are a bit surprising. Because when you think about Texas, you think big, bold. Their state motto? Friendship. <laughs> Some of them are very practical and sound a bit more like a sales pitch. If you go to Tennessee, you'll read signs that say, Agriculture and Commerce. Some are very literal. There's Michigan State motto. It's, I didn't write down the Latin, but I do have the English for us. Michigan. <clears throat> if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. This just describes where you are. It's not... Again, there, there's varying levels and mottos, and uh, whether or not they're inspiring or whatever the state's trying to, I guess, say, what, what is the rallying cry? And if you think about it, you wonder what would be the motto for our faith? What would be the motto for Christianity? I mean, every, nearly every church has a vision statement and they want to put it forth because they want to let know people, let, want to let the people know what their church is about. Matter of fact, if you look in the youth room, you'll see paintings, worship, community, growth. And it's a good thing. Uh, sometimes church movements have their own phrases. The battle cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone. Saying scripture is, the, is our biggest authority that we have on God and who God is. They also had four other solas to go along with it. If we're going to come up with a motto for Christianity, maybe we should just stick to Scripture. Uh, a lot of Christians point to John 3, 16. I could probably ask the whole congregation to quote it. You probably could. It's simple. For God who so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, as, as far as motto goes, uh, that would be a pretty good one. There's so much to unpack. And matter of fact, I had one of my professors talk about this verse, and he said, you need to preach for 10 years before you can preach on John 3.16. Uh, so I have a few more years to go. We're going to tackle something a little bit easier this morning, but not really. We're going to talk about the fall of mankind. But to get straight to the point, whatever our motto is, Whatever our rally cry should be as Christians, we need to recognize our need for a Savior. 
We need to recognize our need for Jesus. And that's the main thrust of this sermon. We have a Savior in Jesus. And so we're going to break this down. We're going to look at this passage first at the sin, and then we're going to look at this shame, and then we're going to finally point to the Savior. So sin. uh, This is a well-known story. If you grew up in church, you, you, you learned this as a little kid about the fall of Adam and Eve. We have this serpent uh, coming into the garden. The serpent, all we know is that he's more crafty than any other beast of the field. He's crafty. He's, he's cunning. There's something clever about the way the snake op- operates. This This passage leads sort of ominous. Immediately we see the villain, uh, the antagonist, the serpent, and what we know about him is he is very, very clever. And indeed, the way he approaches Eve, uh, he's being very clever. He's going after Eve. Eve was not there when God gave the command. See, God created Adam first, and then he gave him a command. And this is found in Genesis 2.16. He says this, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the, tra- not of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, only after this command is Eve made. And because Eve was not there, the serpent goes after Eve and uh, starts asking very tricky questions. Did God indeed say? Maybe. Possibly Eve wasn't there. Did God indeed say? He's striking at the very foundation between the relationship of God and man. He immediately goes after the Word of God. He immediately goes after this law that God has given Adam and Eve. And he clearly gets it wrong. He's basically going to Eve and saying, tell me what God says. Do you indeed say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now we know this is intentional because the serpent is crafty. But he's prodding for some miscommunication. He's prodding for some weakness. And he gets it. He finds what he's looking for. Because Eve responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, I read the command before, and if... You notice there's very big and stark differences between what God says and what Eve says. Now, Adam was there. He was, he was there when God gave the command. And from what we can read, Adam is standing nearby. He's not engaging in this conversation, but neither is he away. He doesn't interrupt. He doesn't point out and say, no, 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 no. It's not what God says. Instead, he lets it go on. And as my former professor points out, Eve misses so much in what she says. 
Eve says, God said we should not touch this tree. But God never said that. That's not the rule. The rule is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, I guess, it's hard to read into motive of uh, our earthly father, but uh, he doesn't correct here. He doesn't relay, and I guess in this idea of, well, I'm not, since I'm not going to eat it, I better not even touch it. And this is something we do. To protect ourselves from sin, we, we tend to set up boundaries that are not biblically there. And that, in some cases, that can be wise. And it can be wise to know your own limitations and say, I better not. But where we're going to fall into sin is when we impose these wisdom issues on other people that are simply not scriptural. He says, I'm not going to touch it. Because Adam did not relay this command very well. She minimizes the penalty. This is the other thing that Eve does. See, God says, you shall surely die. Eve says, lest you die. It's a small but important difference. God gives a definitive statement on the discipline that comes from eating of the tree of garden. You shall surely die. Eve's statements like, this could happen. This may even likely happen. Israelites did this often. They often, when they were confronted with a prophet and they're saying, you are sinning, they'll say, well, yes, we are sinning. Yes, God said he's going to bring this judgment, but he usually relents. Or he usually pushes it off to another generation. The first part of Ezekiel is simply Ezekiel telling the Israelites, God's no longer doing that. Your punishment is coming. Eve here is saying, eh, the Lord may or may not, likely will, but probably won't, possibly won't. There's, there's a softening of what is wrong with eating of this tree. We too do this with our sin. We can often get so hyped and so joyous in God's forgiveness and mercy that we can fall into this tendency of, I'm going to forgive myself of this sin that I am about to commit. It's not so bad. I am forgiven. We are no different from Eve minimizing the punishments and the discipline that God has put before his people. But not only does she minimize the punishment, she also she, she makes small the blessing. God's like, you can, it says you can eat freely of any tree of the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve is like, yeah, we can eat. But God's saying, no, you can eat freely. They, they were allowed to have their fill. They could take whatever they want. They were given this entire garden as a blessing to them. Our Lord 
is so much more gracious than we think. It is not good to minimize the goodness of God. It is not good to minimize the eternal blessings that He gives. How tentative are we in our prayers when God tells us to ask boldly? How often are we timid in our generosity when we know that the Lord says, I will provide? So Eve has messed up the command of God. She has messed up the word of God. And Adam, who is right there, who was there when God gave the command, provides no correction. And this is the window that the serpent needs. And he goes right after the discipline aspect, the part that she minimized, the part where she said, eh, lest you shall die. It's like, you shall surely not die. What he's doing is very crafty because, again, he's very cunning. He's taking away her fear of the Lord. He's taken this away. He's taken away this honor. He's taken away this respect. He's taken away this very real fear of God's divine judgment, of God's divine justice. He's taken away, the, he's, he's nudging, he's like, is God going to bring this wrath upon you? And so he takes away that fear and honor, respect for the king of creation, and then he goes after her pride. You will be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll have the same wisdom that God has. The serpent is very cunning indeed, taking away her fear and then billowing her pride. It's a tough one-two punch. It is uh, a temptation that is very difficult for Eve and Adam to resist. And if you're familiar with spiritual warfare, you, you know it works. It worked for Adam and Eve. They sinned. They fell. And it's easy for us. We have the benefit of hindsight. We have thousands of years difference between us and the beginning of mankind to look back and say, I would have done differently. I would not have wasted away the spoils of those blessings. In that, we can be sort of like cheering our favorite sports team where we're talking about, you know what, that coach made a terrible call. If I was the coach, I would have run a different play. And it would have been successful. When in reality, we, we would not have done better. And I tell you this, Adam and Eve, they were the best that humanity could be. They had no sin. They didn't have these temptations. They didn't have the struggles that we have. They didn't have the hurt that we have. They didn't have the brokenness. They knew God. Adam stands in his presence. 
Adam sees the creation at work. He goes, to, he's alone, he goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and then he has a wife. They had everything they could want. They didn't have hunger. They could eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Their work was enjoyable. They had dominion over the animals. True dominion. Now we have pets, we have animals we can keep as pets. But we also have lots of animals that we cannot keep as pets. Much to my nephews and nieces' chagrin, we cannot keep dinosaurs as pets. The animals didn't fear humans like they do now. Really, there's no person, with the exception of one, there's no person that can claim, I would have done better than Adam and Eve. I mean, I guess you could. You could say those words, uh, but it would be self-righteous vanity. If you take all of the good traits of humanity, everything that is good about the world, everything that is loving about the world, everything that is caring about the world, all of those traits were in Adam and Eve and none of the evilness were in them. And yet they fall. They fail. The serpent tempts Eve, and she, along with Adam, sin. As Christians, we use the word sin a lot. We talk about sin in our lives. We talk about how the world is sinful. We talk about how other people are sinful. We can talk about how sin is damaging to our relationships. So we should really know what sin is. I think the simplest way to look at sin is one of two things. One, it is a direct disobeying of God's law. Intentionally trespassing what God has laid out before you. This is what Adam and Eve did. But it's also failing to do God's law. It's failing to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's failing to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. It is failing to take care of the widows and the orphans and the sojourners. And because of the sin, and because we are all sinners, this is the reason for every pain, stress, hurt in the world today. It affected us all. Adam and Eve's sin affected us all. It is the reason we have death. Because we are all, as C.S. Lewis put it, we are all sons of Adam's, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. They are our ancestors, our father and mother. And you may say, well, wait a second. One, nobody can trace their generation that far back. Two, I'm not them. In America, we rarely think so familial. We're very independent people, very individualistic. 
Uh, we want everything tailored to our specific wants and needs. So why do we have to bear this curse brought in by Adam and Eve? Well, I'll tell you this. Adam's the father of mankind. He was the head of all of our households. And he, has moved, he moved the family into a state of sinfulness. Think of it like this. I am a South Carolinian. My parents are not from South Carolina. My dad's almost entire family is from the state of Alabama. Matter of fact, they have a family reunion every year. It's right outside of Troy. There's a fish fry. I've been once. It was amazing. My mom's side of the family, from Tennessee. As far as I know, there have been grays and rays in Tennessee since there has been a state of Tennessee. Yet, both my parents moved to Sumter for work, and that's where they met. They can tell you the full story. It's not for me to share up in the sermon unless it's a really great illustration. But this is where they met. And because they met in Sumter, I and my brother were born in Sumter, South Carolina. We're one of the very few South Carolinians in our family. There's nothing I can do to change that. Now, don't get me wrong. I love being in the state of South Carolina. I have lived elsewhere, and the pimento cheese was not very good. So I'm glad I am here. I have no choice in being a South Carolinian. There's nothing I could ever do to change that. Likewise, Adam and Eve lived in more of a metaphysical state of innocence. There was a sinlessness. They lived in a state in which there was no hurt, there was no pain, there were no tears. They lived in a state in which they could commune with God and physically be in His presence. And when they fall, they move the entire of humanity into the state of sinfulness. Whatever we do, we, can, we cannot change that outcome. We are all sinners because of what happens here in this passage. And because of that, we can truly react the way, we can truly understand the way in which they react, this shame in which they uh, approach the Lord in their sin. They hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. All of a sudden, that, that sentence becomes terrifying. Because Adam and Eve, as soon as they eat of the fruit, they see their nakedness and they hide. They make, they make fig leaves to cover themselves. They sew them together. And then they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. They try to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees, but the Lord calls to them and says, Where are you? And Adam confesses immediately, I heard you in the sound of the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. They're like children with cookie crumbs on their face. 
They're trying to hide from the very creator of the universe. They're trying to hide from the very real presence of God, and they have fig leaves and trees. But they are very much like children in that they are new to this brokenness. They are new to this shame. And they do confess, sort of, because God tells them, he asks them, who told you uh, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, his confession is not very good. First of all, he blames God. and He's like, the woman that you gave me, she's the one who messed it up because she gave me the fruit. And I ate. Eve, following Adam's example, well, the serpent told me it would be okay. And I ate. Note that already God sounds very much like a father here. He's asking these questions. He's He's not asking these questions out of ignorance. He's asking these questions to draw them out, to get them to confess. Where are you? Who told you? Did you do what I commanded you not to? What is this you have done? He's asking these questions so that Adam and Eve may see what they have done wrong. He's he's drawing out these confessions from people who are made from dust and bone. And you can see the breaking of this relationship. Whatever God and man had before, whatever the relationship between Adam and the Lord and Eve and God had before, that is gone. There is damage here. There's even their unwillingness to say, yes, I have sinned. This unwillingness shows just how much is lost. We have an unwillingness to admit our guilt. Shame does terrible things. Shame pushes us into the dark. Our first instinct is, instinct is excuse for our sin. Maybe even justification. Saying, this is, this is why I have sinned, or this is why I did what was wrong, because someone else. Because I was wronged. Because I was deceived. It's not purely my fault. Shame makes us want to hide things in the dark. I know facing sin is difficult. It is, it is hard for us. Nobody wants to sit around the kitchen table and recount everything that they have done wrong. Nobody wants to sit around in a campfire and talk about the way that they have been evil. It is our nature to present ourselves in the best light possible, and when we do that, we often hide everything that can take away from it. And as much as we wish to ignore our sin, doing so only lets it fester. It lets it grow, and it damages our lives, it damages our relationships even more. Uh, It tears down bridges, it puts up walls. 
and it is awful. And we see this, Adam and Eve hiding like children. But we are called to confess. The scriptures ask us to confess, to repent, to turn from sin, and turn to the Lord. And this is good. It is a good thing because as we read in Ephesians 2, we have hope. We have a Savior. And God, who is very much acting like a father here, immediately tells Adam and Eve that a Savior is coming. After Adam and Eve speak, after they sit here and say, she did it, he did it, then we ate. God turns to the serpent and says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and on dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's so much to unpack here. But what we see immediately is that God is acting on behalf of Adam and Eve. He is standing for his children. Yes, the relationship is damaged. Yes, the blessings that they had before are now gone and removed. But God does not abandon them. Instead, he turns to the serpent and he pronounces its demise. What once was known for its craftiness, what once was known for being the cleverest animal in the garden, he takes away its legs, which apparently serpents had before. He takes away its legs. Those are gone, and he says, you will, you will go on your belly and you shall eat dust. This is God's divine justice immediately coming in on behalf of his children, and he humiliates the serpent. You will be on your belly for the rest of the days. Everything you eat shall be dirty. Once was more clever than all the beasts is now more cursed than all the animals. The Lord doesn't simply punish the serpent. He finishes with this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And with that, we have our first prophecy, our first foretelling of the Savior, our first telling of the coming of Jesus. Now, it does use a word we don't use a lot anymore, this word enmity, which basically means to make enemies. Now, if you're a football fan, we just had rivalry week uh, yesterday, and depending on who you're a fan of, it was either a great day or a terrible day. But it's funny how whole families raise their family to not only pull for their team, but truly dislike the other team. 
It almost becomes this moral value, this virtue to dislike the other team. And I confess, I am one of those people. I won't say which team I have enmity against, but that's, if you know me, you know, and that's fine. Here, God's saying, I will make enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. He's going to go, he already points out, there will be spiritual warfare. You will have, the serpent will have offspring. Now, it is spiritual offspring, it's not literal. But he's talking about those like Cain, who killed his brother, or the Pharaoh whose heart was hardened against the Israelites and sought to destroy them, or even Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ and sent him to the cross. These are the offspring of the serpent, those who would wage war with God's children, who would make enemies of God's children. And it's almost an image of an eternal war. A one that doesn't end. A battle between good and evil, forever fighting. But the Lord doesn't leave it at that. He pronounces a victor. He says, He, that is her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord's talking about Jesus. In the moment of shame, in which Adam and Eve hear God coming and their first instinct is to hide, the Lord brings them out and pronounces justice on the enemies of God's children. And this battle finds its peak at the cross. Christ is victorious. Christ has won. Evil is vanquished. Christ, once and for all, conquers sin and death. Christ secures for us an eternal life. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden, what they brought into this world, this death, comes to an end. And when Jesus returns, there will be life forevermore. Our Father in heaven, as soon as there is sin in the world, he comes in with a, and he has a plan of redemption. The serpent had no chance. Yes, the serpent committed a great evil, and Adam and Eve, and their sin is the reason the world is, is as it is. But our Father is loving, and He is caring. We're, we're heading into the Christmas season, Stuart's uh, our head pastor, he'll be giving a series of sermons on the come, that will focus on the coming of Jesus and how Christ came to save his people. 
God had this planned out. He, uh, because humanity, humanity had perfection. Humanity had life without sin, life without pain, a life in which everything was good. And it was rejected. It was squandered, sin broke it, and has caused so much shame and brokenness and heartache and evil. But Jesus, as we are told here, crushes the serpent's head. As John writes about in the book of Revelation, the dragon is slain. Paul reiterates it, saying the dragon's head is crushed by the cross. Jesus has come, and he's providing salvation for all who believe in him. He is the new Adam. He is the one who lived a perfect life, and when tempted by the devil, rejected it. So that he may love us. And that we may be saved. What was lost in the biting of the fruit, that is, that is restored by our Savior. Not only restored, but God provides an eternal life that is so much better than the Garden of Eden. This is the hope that is proclaimed by the Gospel. This is the joy that is proclaimed by the Gospel. This is why we sing God's name every Sunday morning and throughout the week. Because Jesus loves his people. And God saves his people. For as soon as there is sin in the world, God promised salvation. Now let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that we may always remember Christ. That we may always remember the hope that he provides. And Lord, while sin does destroy, it causes pain, it causes death, it causes hurt. We lose relationships, friendships, family. There is hope in Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that we may see Jesus. It is in our Savior's name we pray. Amen.